Today on episode number 310 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Ramey Kalir joins me to talk about professional learning in a time of pandemic. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Candidly, it feels awfully strange to be saying those final words in the introduction, to be even more present for our students, as so many of us struggle with all of the implications of the pandemic in our own lives, we also still have that desire to be present for our students, to be present for our lives, to show up. And Ramey Kalir and I have a conversation today as we look at his doctoral seminar on educator professional learning in the light of our crisis and the many educational implications. And he invited his students to write an alternative paper. And in this episode, you'll hear us talk about a letter that he and his colleagues wrote to their students that is linked to in the show notes. There is so much to wrestle with in terms of contrasting the business as usual educator professional development and what needs and realities are emerging today. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Ramey just as much as I did. And we're looking forward to hearing from you any of your thoughts that you'd like to share with us on the kinds of things that you're struggling with and the kinds of things that you're succeeding with during this time. I do also want to mention that in addition to Ramey's bio, which you can find on Teaching in Higher Ed, to learn a little bit more about his work at the University of Colorado Denver's School of Education and Human Development, that he also is a faculty member for this year's digital pedagogy lab, which has gone online. And I invite you to go and click on the link in the show notes to learn more about that event. We are continuing our partnership. Of course, our hope had been to join everyone there, including Ramey in Colorado, but that is not going to be the case for this event, which is disappointing, yet also points to some opportunities that we have to engage in new ways and reach people who would not have been able to join us there physically. So I'm really looking forward to you hearing this conversation. I hope you'll go check out the Digital Pedagogy Lab information to see if it's something you might want to participate in online. And I'm just looking forward to this conversation with Ramey. Ramey Kalir, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. It is a pleasure to be here, Bonnie. Thanks for reconnecting. People who I know who have gone through times of significant grief in their lives, there has been something that has been a pattern for those people. And it is instead of asking them how they're doing, many of them have expressed to me that they prefer to be asked, how are you doing today? Because that's an easier question to answer. So I'm going to ask you, Ramey, how are you doing today? Thank you, Bonnie, for framing it that way. I certainly appreciate that. I'm doing okay today. Today's actually the day before my birthday, which is always kind of awkward since it comes at the end of the academic calendar and people are busy and it's hard to celebrate when everyone's stressful anyways. And then in this particular circumstance, 
during a semester in which everyone's academic lives and livelihood has been upended. If not, people are dealing with so much more, you know, again, trauma, uncertainty, and pain. I'm doing okay today. You know, I'm thinking a lot about ritual and transition. It's the end of the semester. People should be graduating, and maybe they are, but in different ways. People are having their final faculty meetings of the year, but in, again, kind of strange and different ways. You know, I have a birthday tomorrow, and yet I'll be celebrating with my wife and my 11 month old son. But, you know, the idea of social connection is very different now. And certainly, again, that resonates with all of us who are educators. So I'm doing okay today. And, and, and thanks for asking. I'm just seeing this increased need for self-awareness. And I mentioned that I'm on this COVID-19 leadership team, and I'm working with people that I really have never either worked with at all before, or certainly not this closely. And they chuckle at me because I just think we just have to be self-aware such that, you know, any of our personalities, any of our default settings, they just get radically amplified during this time, which, you know, our strengths, when the volume gets turned up, that can be a really good thing. And then it gets turned up a little too much. And all of a sudden, it goes into being a bad thing. Are you noticing any of your default settings that are really oh, just yeah. being magnified? I'm chuckling a little bit because I said this to uh, my wife a few days ago, I said, you know, I think that our own personal emotional register is much more similar to that of our young son, which is not that you know, young children or infants have emotional registers that are inappropriate or that are not authentic. It's just that they really fluctuate so dramatically from now I'm laughing and playing to now I'm screaming my head off to now I'm visibly annoyed. And there's a little less of a filter for an 11 month old than there is for somebody who's, you know, decades into their life. And yet I, I agree, Bonnie, from moment to moment, hour to hour, to be very, again, honest and transparent, and I think reflective of this moment, this is still happening almost every day for me, which is there's a lot of trepidation around opening my email inbox or the messaging that I use, the messaging services I use with my courses. So just yesterday, I received yet another message from a student who was saying, I'm sorry that I had to check out for a few weeks. My father got sick with COVID. And that's become so regular now. and the ritual, which has become so habitual of just opening my email, which is often seen as kind of an annoying task previously, now can become a very significant emotional trigger and a reminder that people are suffering in very serious ways, whether they're losing jobs or again, like a student of mine, again, just yesterday, whose father was ill. And unfortunately, I've had students whose families have experienced much worse. And so, again, from moment to moment, hour to hour, and day to day, as you say, you know, how are you doing today? That register of my emotion is just so variable. And that also adds to the challenges of the moment and of being an educator in the moment, of being responsive to the needs of students and colleagues in the moment. So, yeah, this is, this is, hard, this is hard work. A lot of our conversation today is going to be framed around something that you wrote. It started, I believe, as a series of tweets talking about some changes, some reflections on your teaching this semester, and then you wrote a post. And I wonder if you would start just our conversation around where did you just start to see this bubbling up of change, a need for change, a need to rethink things, enough to, to prompt you to write such um, thought-provoking words? 
Well, thanks, Bonnie. You know, I, I teach um, a number of doctoral courses at the University of Colorado, Denver. And among the courses I teach is one specifically about professional learning. And I've taught the class for a number of years now, and, and there are a number of important themes that emerge in this class about professional learning that always come up for our students. So one of the major themes and also tensions in the class is the difference between more conventional professional development, or PD, and some of the more open-ended, more flexible, and more grassroots approaches to what we might call professional learning. And those types of communities and networks and interest-driven experiences that contribute to the professional learning of educators that sometimes look very different than the more mandated, dare I even say, kind of authoritarian approaches to PD. So that's a big tension that my doctoral students wrestle with every year. And they do so because many of those students in that class, in another context, are themselves educators or maybe school principals, or they have the responsibility to design and facilitate perhaps approaches to professional development that they want to look a little bit more like professional learning. And so we talk about that every semester. And every semester we talk about notions of community and maybe more critical approaches to the types of networks and experiences that shift us more towards the more humanizing approaches to professional learning that enact many of the critical dispositions that I think are important in teaching and learning today. Well, so that happens every semester anyways. So when you then layer on top of that, the current COVID crisis and all of the educational disruptions and transformations that have occurred over the past few months, the students in my course, again, who have their own classrooms of students, some of whom are in K-12 contexts, some of whom also teach in higher ed or might be leading maybe educational nonprofits, they are now really wrestling with what it means to be a leader, what it means to be a learner in this particular moment in time, and ultimately what it means to learn professionally when many of the assumptions, many of the rituals, many of the routines of education, kind of schooling as usual, now just no longer exist. And so in that context, my students and I began to open up a series of conversations. I ultimately changed that course's final assignment to invite discussion and invite kind of provocation about what professional learning looks like at a time of pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so my initial thoughts were written kind of haphazardly, but from a place of emotion and concern initially on Twitter, you're right. And then that thread became a more substantive blog post that is now also an instructional resource for my students as they've begun to shape kind of their final representations, their own final thoughts, at least in the moment, about how they themselves as professionals are approaching, are navigating, and are making decisions about their professional learning to advance, whether it's their own institutions whether it's their own sense of well-being, whether it's their own professional practice during a very challenging moment. I also teach a doctoral class that is not about professional learning, but is about professional learning. <laughs> it's a technology and leadership class. And I, I also changed my final assignment. It sounds very similar to what you did. I wanted to just talk you through sort of a tension that I saw before COVID-19 with having taught the class, I think, for seven or eight years now. And then also it, it echoes my work in faculty development. 
I think that I naively thought, and I really wrestled with this for longer than I feel like I should have. I feel like I should have figured this out sooner. But I just thought that if you put structures in place in a class, or perhaps even I should say a lack of structures, to rid the class policies, class structure from this authoritarian voice, in my experience, you actually get more resistance than I ever would have expected because I really treasure autonomy. I love it. Learning is one of my strengths on the strengths finder instrument. I mean, I just, so I just go like, I, I wrestled with that for a long time because I think it's just like release, you know, release the doves and they'll fly out of their cage and never be the same again. What has your experience been both before COVID and then now did you see a difference in terms of lifting that authoritarian nature of what some people come into an experience like that thinking you're going to do for them as a teacher. Well, and that's great, Bonnie. And so I think that there's two contexts here that we're we're talking about. One is within a course context, what am I inviting students to explore? What kinds of, again, constraints or opportunities are presented that they themselves may pursue? But also the context of what this may look like, again, for professional learning. And again, whether it's for faculty in higher ed or those who teach or lead in other types of higher ed classrooms or settings that they might want to pursue. So let me first suggest that in the context of a class, I think it's critically important to provide those constraints because then people know how to identify boundary. They can then push against those boundaries and they can find opportunities to creatively say, oh, okay, I can see now how to kind of cross this line. And I think, again, good examples of that are possible, whether it's in how you frame online discussion, how you approach all kinds of pedagogical assignments and arrangements. And so I, I want to, first of all, say that you know it's important to invite students to play in that space a little bit, to kind of push against the envelope, so to speak. And I think in this particular moment, that's very easy to do. Because again, those standard routines, those standard expectations, those standard ways of doing things have all been maybe for better, maybe for worse, they've all been thrown out the window. And so I think there's already a need to rethink some of those things anyways. And a lot of that is, again, coming from the experiences of our learners, the experiences of our educational leaders, the experiences of our colleagues, which suggests to me then the second kind of context that I want to orient to, which is a professional learning context, which is that a lot of the immediate response to the COVID crisis has been rather technical. We've been saying to faculty and to learners and to others, here's how to transition into this so-called remote or so-called emergency remote modality. Here's how to put stuff online. Here's how to use certain tools. And as a professor of learning technology, I'm honestly often very skeptical of many technical solutions to very complex human problems. And I'm also particularly skeptical of technical kind of technical determinism that says, here is your silver bullet solution to now, again, some very challenging social circumstances. All of which is to say that the questions that inspire me now come from the educators, again, in a variety of settings who have always said, I've always been curious about how to amplify student agency in my teaching. And now is the time to really do so. Or I've always been curious about how to be a more anti-racist educator. Well, now is really the time to do so. You know, I've always been curious about more interdisciplinary connections and how to really draw upon more real world examples that allow my students to like critique systemic injustice 
from whatever disciplinary lens I bring. Well, now is the time to really do so. And one of my fears in the initial transition of our educational institutions because of the COVID crisis has been, here are some tutorials and again, more technical oriented solutions or fixes to some very serious problems. And my bias, because it's a bias, <laughs> and the conversations that I'm having with my students suggest this is an opportunity if one invites it and if one embraces the challenge of it to say, yes, we can do the technical stuff, but there are some longer term opportunities that are being opened here to pretty radically rethink what it means to be an educator. And now is an opportunity to embrace professional learning opportunities that allow me to question, to embrace, and to design toward some very different dispositions and practices professionally, ethically, socially, and that we can embrace those too. And that we, you know, we might not have the technical guidebook to do that yet, but we can build it now. And now is the time to do so. I have been so challenged by this because as someone who just loves teaching so much, I recognize the need for the kind of foundations that you're describing most classically in my institution or one that's nearby where I work, you know, a different one, but but they're kind of nearby, <laughs> like on the same block, maybe in the same building, where a lot of questions and challenges are coming up around assessment. And I definitely bring to the table my own biases around assessment and also feel like I feel incredibly grateful to the people that have been willing to come on this podcast in the past. I just think about the education it's been for me. And I know so many people who have listened where I've been able to wrestle with some of these things around what is assessment? How do you have that be meaningful and authentic and what have you? But it's they want to go right to taking what they do in their existing practice, by the way, as do I, so I, I don't want to, <laughs> them against me, no, I don't, I don't want to phrase it that way. But just because I feel like I've had more time to reflect and to, I mean, I, gosh, I could just spend the entire episode sharing the failures I've had just around assessment alone and would just barely be getting started. But they want to instantly go to, okay, can we invest in a proctoring tool for all of <laughs> It's like, ah, oh, I don't even know where to start because there's such a fear. And I keep thinking about Josh Eiler. We were mm -hmm. engaging on Twitter around the topic of curiosity. And he was talking about one of his findings for his book, How Humans Learn. Curiosity really gets minimized when you're in crisis mode. <laughs> so I, I wish I could ignite our curiosity around assessment and have these great professional learning conversations and be in community and sharpen each other's thoughts. But I literally don't know how to start when the house is on fire and they just want you to come with the hose. Well, and I think, Bonnie, what you're suggesting to me is the necessary set of first steps in asking the kinds of tough questions that may allow, again, the leaders of educational institutions and faculty, whether on their own or in a collective, to begin to really disentangle core assumptions about things that have often been presumed in the life and in the day-to-day -day flow of a classroom like assessment. you know. And as another example, we might say that it's very important that students collaborate with one another. Well, I would be disappointed, for example, if coming out of this COVID crisis, most faculty learn how to facilitate better online discussion. I mean, that's, that's okay. That's, that's good. I actually happen to care a lot about things like online discussion and collaboration. But if this entire 
incredible upheaval of the educational norms and ways that have been, again, presumed to be useful, many of which we should say already were not very useful for many, many students to begin with. So that's, I think that's important to get under the table as, as well, that many of the, uh, the so-called normal that existed did not work for many students to begin with. And so again, we're presented with, I think we, and I speak here now, we as, as faculty across, again, many different types of institutional contexts, we as, uh, again, instructional designers, we as those who lead educational institutions can take this opportunity to say, this is the time to say, assessment, question mark, <laughs> collaboration, question mark, you know, what are core assumptions that are built into these practices? What was already not working? When we see initiatives around things like ungrading, or we see initiatives around things like inquiry-based learning or interest-driven collaboration among teams of students, what is it about those that was already provocative in the so-called pre-COVID era? And what now can we learn from those models or those strategies and retrain ourselves as professionals, question some of our professional biases, think about our own professional practices in new ways so that we don't try and reinvent what's previously existed in some new reality, but we say there is no return to normal. There cannot be for so many reasons. Our educational institutions and our classrooms will look very, very different, as they should, given what's happening right now. And so what can we do to create more humanizing, to create more equity-oriented, to, to create more socially connected, and to create more politically critical classrooms? And what kinds of professional learning are necessary right now across disciplines and across institutional contexts to make that happen? I'm not suggesting that I have answers to these things, but these are the types of questions and tensions that I'm very curious about right now as our classrooms change, as our institutions change, and the students in my classes are also curious about these kinds of questions. And I think that that's that kind of productive wrestling, the questions, Bonnie, that you're asking, that's what's needed right now. And perhaps people who are not asking the kinds of questions that, again, you mentioned a few moments ago, how can we help nudge those folks to begin wrestling with the types of tensions that you're raising? That to me is the important work right now. Yeah, it's really tough because I think that there's a tendency to want someone else to provide some concrete things in a very, very fluid time. And I'm not going to be great at providing that because I don't I really, the more that I learn about teaching, the more that I learn about using technology to enhance our methods of teaching, the less I realize I have all the answers or that all the answers exist in any one source because learning is so complex and every class is so different. It's amazing. Well, and that's right, Bonnie. We've always, and I, again, when I say we here, I think I'm speaking in this context about those educators who are a little bit more critical and a little bit more creative. Again, there's a continuum there, but I think that there's always been a useful kind of counter narrative to the idea of best practices. And once you begin to disentangle that idea, you can see that the idea of best practices falls apart pretty quickly based upon different types of students and different types of learning contexts and different types of institutional arrangements and all kinds of things that would suggest, you know, best practices may provide some guidance for how to plan or how to design. But once we start to get into the messy work of teaching and learning, those practices will inevitably shift. 
new technologies come along, new students come along, new policies come along, and all of a sudden now we're reinventing, as we should, what those practices are and the context within which we may say they're quote-unquote effective or meaningful or productive. All of which is to suggest that in this now current moment of crisis and the unfolding waves of what will inevitably change our classrooms and our institutions, the notion that we might have best practices guide professional learning, to me, again, is just not possible. There's a need for us to now rethink much of that. I'll just mention briefly that some of my colleagues and I in the learning design and technology program at CU Denver wrote an open letter to our students at the beginning of when it became clear that this was this this crisis was going to fundamentally change not only the semester but but for again many semesters to come and in that letter we did not prescribe dare we say perhaps best practices for our program but we listed some values you know values around notions of privileging care of inviting feedback of trying to listen deeply to concern and of being reflective of our own practice again i think that those commitments those dispositions towards pedagogical care and well-being are values that can then guide professional learning and then can guide sets of practices. But even then, those are not, should not be codified or kind of held up as this is the recipe for how to approach teaching and learning and professional learning in this current moment. It may work for some people, but we've really got to be flexible right now. So I loved that letter so much. And I would love to hear you talk about the origins of a, l- a little bit more? Because I don't think you just sit down and go, you know what we need to do today? We need to write a letter. <laughs> like, I, tell me more about well, the things that I, were happening that wound up that with I, a beautiful I, piece of writing. Well, thank you. And again, I, I, we can share a link to that fr- from this for everyone to have a look at. And, and I would suggest that many similar letters were being written and were being promoted to various audiences. Faculty were writing to other faculty. Some faculty were writing to students. Certainly, formal university memos were being sent to students about things that were policy-oriented. Again, like grading and assessment and pass and no-pass policies and all kinds of things. And my colleagues and I you know, began a conversation about the fact that we care about our students. We want them to know that, but we want them to know that in a way where we're holding ourselves accountable to a broader public. We are, after all, public educators at a public institution. And we're not only writing to our current students, but to our future students as well. Those students who will join our program again in semesters and in years to come. We wanted to craft something that was human first and foremost, that was also simple. Again, it very clearly described our shared commitments to our students. And that would also be a model for other educators, a model for other educators, whether it was at our school, at our university or elsewhere. And after, you know, some drafts and some language tweaking and some, you know, we, we came up with we hope is a pretty short, sweet, but effective letter. And, you know, just to reference something that you and I have previously talked about, some of our students have actually gone in and annotated using the hypothesis tool, the public version, and also a, a, some private versions of, of that. And we, for example, we, we say on that in the letter, we will privilege care. And one of our <laughs> students, colleagues, collaborators came in there and just highlighted that and annotated it, you know, and wrote the word heart in response. And I just think that, again, we're trying to make a public statement about the kinds of values that will then guide our decisions and guide our practices. And that's where that letter came from. And hopefully, again, it serves as a useful model to 
other educators that may then inform their decisions and perhaps even their professional learning commitments, pedagogical decisions in the future. You and I were talking about plexiglass barriers and some institutions that either already have purchased those or in the process of procuring them. And of course, I just the symbolism, it's just dripping (laughs) with symbolism. Talk about the radical act of removing those barriers, the literal and the the figurative ones, and the challenge of it, because I never want it to come across as that's the easier road to take. Well, and that's that's so important, Bonnie, because I believe that many institutions are grappling with all kinds of, again, technical solutions to very complex human challenges that are, in our case, related to teaching and learning, whether it's plexiglass, which again, metaphorically has its own kind of hilarious and very challenging implications. One of the things that my institution is wrestling with right now is the idea of very flexible, synchronous classroom sessions. So some students can come to campus if campus reopens, some students can join on Zoom. Again, the idea here is to invite student agency and flexibility. It again raises all kinds of very challenging circumstances around who shows up and where and how do you design for that? And what if you have 35 students on Zoom and two students in a classroom? And how do you group students and how do they talk? And you know, how do you do a think pair share? And all kinds of things come to the fore. And again, I want to present today less a set of discrete solutions, but rather to provoke us to think very critically about all the circumstances, the scenarios, and the questions that will arise whenever we're presented with these potential solutions. So whether the potential solution is plexiglass barriers in a large lecture hall, or a potential solution is running synchronous kind of hybrid sessions, and students can kind of show up however they want to show up. We can think of all other kinds of potential circumstances to having class and having you know people come together. All of these solutions for me raise as many challenging questions as they do at face value an answer that will work. And amidst all of that, my hope is that educators find ways of supporting their own acts of radical pedagogical love for their colleagues and for their students, because none of this will be easy. If faculty show up in the fall teaching in a lecture hall with plexiglass barriers, that will be very challenging. And how do we provide professional learning supports to create then meaningful learning opportunities if that's the learning environment that faculty are in? In the same way that if faculty find themselves having to juggle from one class session to another, some students in a classroom, some students in Zoom, Does the audio work? Does the video work? Are there microphones all over the room? Do they even have access to that hardware? Can students even hear one another? Can they even see the same things? How do they actually get together to do a gallery walk of responses to something? Like, again, how do we have radical pedagogical love for the teachers and the students in that moment if that is the learning environment that we find ourselves in in a particular classroom in three or four months? There's two things that I'm taking away from what you just shared. One comes from an unexpected book, at least I think it'll be unexpected for you, is The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. It is, I've recommended it before on the podcast. Who would think that a book about checklists could be riveting? It totally is, all the way through. One of the chapters, though, looks at types of 
architecture that have never been conceived of before, buildings that they've never built before. So how do you take the architects or the construction people? So you can tell I'm very technical in this realm. And then how do you apply it when you've never done this before? So I keep thinking about less checklists that have existed before, instead checklists to continue to learn from your practice and your failures and your successes. That to me, because it's, it's going to be hard, but especially if we're not learning individually and collectively. And then the second part is just that all of this needs to be aligned with our values. And you've already done the very hard work. At least it looks hard. You may have been effortless, but it looks like, I mean, just wrestling with those values that you expressed in such poignant ways. I, I think about that meme where they say, you said the quiet part out loud. And and I won't mention the institution because I don't feel, I mean, I don't feel like I'm even educated enough to reference it, but there was some college president that basically wrote about the plans for the fall semester in a very utilitarian format. And and so it's like, and really the values were right there of like, well, no, of course we don't value this part of our society as much as we value. I mean, it just, it was right there in the wording. Well, if you don't mind me mentioning the university. Oh, for sure, by all means. Yeah, when it was Brown University. And, you know, I think it's just notable, the president of Brown University is also a deputy chair of the Federal Reserve Bank in Boston. And that editorial to me was shocking in that it barely mentioned teaching. It did not mention notions of pedagogy. And I had to think to myself, if I was a faculty member at Brown, and this is my president's letter, what kinds of questions would that raise for me about, again, my professional commitments to my students as an educator? And you know, I don't need to give that university or that letter a harder time now, but I just I do think that we are seeing statements about the viability of planning for the fall. And I recognize that there are very smart people who are making very challenging decisions right now, and that every institutional context is different. And the challenges facing every institution are going to be different. And so, again, very smart people are making very challenging decisions right now about what it means to return safely to campus, what it means to return safely to teaching and learning. But when that happens, I would encourage professors and instructors and designers and (laughs) co-conspirators of all flavors of people to ask themselves, as you said, what are the things that we really, really value here about what it means to teach and learn, knowing that every educator is going to have a pre-COVID chapter of their professional life and a post-COVID chapter of their professional life, that every student who's enrolled, whether it's in undergraduate or graduate programs, will have a pre-COVID chapter of their life as a student and a post-COVID chapter of life as their student. And things cannot return to normal. Things will have to be different. And so what are the tough questions and the tough conversations that are perhaps less to do with, again, these kind of technocratic solutions, proctoring exams online, or trying to maintain the, again, viability of our financial models, and to say, can we really act critically and creatively to show how much we care for our students to care for their learning and to care for their well-being? And then how do we as educators support that? That's going to take a really different approach to learning. And I want to explore that. And I want to try and design for that. And I want to try and, again, bring people together to do that hard work now so that we don't try and approximate what existed before in a completely different educational reality going down the road. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations and 
I've recommended another column by this person, maybe even a couple of other columns, Aisha S. Ahmad. She's mm. been writing for the Chronicle about the broad topic of productivity. And as someone who wrote a book about productivity, let's just say I'm not talking about it a lot right now <laughs> because it just seems like going for a walk seems so much more of a appropriate productivity approach for someone to be taking than any of the things I wrote about. So I'm just loving what she wrote. This particular column I'll be linking to is called How to Salvage a Disastrous Day in Your COVID-19 Quarantine. And what I like about it is that sometimes we we might show up in our professions as very goal-oriented or achievement-oriented people and that can be really frustrating during a time like this. And so I just love she's more speaking about more day-tight compartment aspects of measuring one's success and really shrinking that down in a similar way, Remy, that you described shrinking down our assignments. You didn't use the word shrinking and maybe that's not the right word to use, but I just think we need to rethink what it means to have a quote unquote successful or unsuccessful day in these times. I also really enjoyed a Twitter thread that Dave Cormier, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name right, Uh, Sorry, Dave, I've only ever seen your name on Twitter. (laughs) But uh, I love the thread he had about working from home. And it it sounded rather tongue in cheek with how he started it with uh, he said something about, you know, with kids at home, trying to do homeschooling, essentially, like, how do we measure success in, in today? And there were some really, really thoughtful posts. But what I got, I took more out of it than anything else were the hysterical ones. <laughs> like Terry Green just had, I, I can't remember exactly what he wrote, but I just had tears coming out of my eyes because I thought, you people see me right now. <laughs> it was just awesome. So those are the two things that I'll be linking to in the recommendation segment. And I'm going to pass it over to you for yours. Awesome. Well, so I'm going to just recommend one Someone who actually, I should ask you first, has, has, has Matt Reed been on the podcast before, Bonnie? Is, does he go by the Dean Dad? Dean or Dad, one of those? yeah. I need, to, I need to invite him. No, so I, I'm going to recommend Dean Dad. Yeah, so, so this is Matt Reed. His Twitter handle is at Dean Dad. He's the vice president of learning at Brookdale Community College. So Matt Reed authors a column or a blog, I should say, for Inside Higher Ed. And that blog is is called Confessions of a Community College Dean. And he writes pretty regularly, like three or four times a week sometimes. And ever since the, again, real implications for the COVID crisis um, emerged, I have been reading his blog, his column, almost whenever a new, a new, I know, a new post comes up. Um, I found it to be indispensable for a whole host of reasons. Sharp intellect, creative thinking, Again, as somebody who is at a public institution and one that is, you know, welcoming of really students from all walks of life, we our undergraduate, you know, population at CU Denver is primarily first-generation college students. We actually share a campus in downtown Denver with the Community College of Denver, and I've learned a lot about community colleges since coming to CU Denver. And so, having his perspective as a community college dean, again, that's the title of his post, and just his perspective on higher education writ large now in this current historical moment has just been invaluable. And so maybe that's then also my next recommendation is Bonnie, get him on this podcast. <laughs> and I just think that he will be a wonderful guest and will have so much to share. But for all of the listeners of certainly this episode, definitely do track down his column. Um, again, it's at Inside Higher Ed and it's titled Confessions of a Community College Dean. Check it out. 
It's so great having this conversation with you today. I Every time I get to talk to you, I just walk away feeling inspired and challenged in some really good ways. And I just, I enjoy every conversation with you. Thanks for coming back on Teaching Now You're Pleasure to be here, Bonnie. Thanks so much. Thanks once again to Dr. Ramey Kalir for joining me for this conversation about learning in a time of pandemic. If you'd like to view the show notes for today's episode, they're at teachinginhighered.com slash 310. They are also inside of your podcast player in the show notes sections there, and you can go access the links to the information that we mentioned there. And I just want to invite you, if you haven't already, to go over and check out the Digital Pedagogy Lab information and find ways you might want to plug in either informally or to register as a participant. There are a lot of wonderful classes there, wonderful workshop leaders on the faculty, and just a wonderful resource for our community. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.